is paid, it is paid in full by the precious blood that my Jesus spilled. Now the curse of sin has no hold on me. Whom the Son sets free, oh, is free indeed. Now my debt is paid, it is paid in full by the precious blood that my Jesus spilled. for the life that you gave us. We thank you that while we were hopeless, you gave us hope. That while we were dead, you gave us life. As we celebrate that this morning, we pray that you would be honored and be near us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys can have a seat. We have the privilege of observing communion this morning, this unique ordinance that Jesus gave us and that allows us to draw close in worship to him. We celebrate an open communion, so it's open to everyone that has placed their faith in Jesus Christ. We ask parents to lead the worship with your uh, children. And if you did not yet uh, get the elements, they are in the back, uh, the bread and the cup. And they come uh, sealed together. So I invite you to start unsealing the bread on top. Uh, we will take that first. We will take it together so you can hold it once you uh, rescue it from its wrapper. <laughs> We've just sung uh, about the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ and the implications of that, uh, that um, our sin has been dealt with. Our debt has been paid. We are born sinners. We are worthy only of the wrath of God. 
And uh, the penalty for that is death, is what Scripture tells us. Separation, eternal separation from a loving God. But we're told that God loves us so much. That's his motivation. But God being rich in mercy with his great love with which he loved us. Sent his son to die on the cross for our sins. So when you think about those great passages like Ephesians 2, 4 that I just mentioned. Or, or John three sixteen, For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. Or Romans 5, 8. But God demonstrated his own love toward us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It's an incredible thing to think about the love of God. And I'd like for us to do that this morning as we commune with Jesus. What happens when we experience the unconditional love of another? We trust them, don't we? We trust them more deeply. And so if you're here and have not yet trusted Jesus Christ, I invite you to believe that he died on the cross for your sin in your place. Was buried and rose again. When you place your faith in Christ like that, your sins are forgiven and all guilt and shame is taken away and you receive the free gift of eternal life. For those of us that have received Jesus as Savior, I invite you to consider his love again. Talk to him now. Trust him. Rejoice over his love. Confess any sin that comes to mind because you don't want that in your life with the one who loves you this much and give thanks remember the one that knows you best loves you most let's take a little time of prayer together just you and jesus and then i will close this prayer and then we'll take the elements together Jesus, we are overwhelmed by your love for us. We are so thankful that you would go to the cross in our place, that you would take on the sin of the world to pay a debt that we could not pay, and that you would simply offer eternal life freely and unconditionally to all who trust in you. We thank you for that, Lord Jesus. We thank you for your love. We treasure you because of your love. And we realize anew and afresh that we don't trust you uh, 
as deeply as we could when we think about how deep your love for us is. We thank you for always showing up for us. And we thank you for the free gift of eternal life, which you have given to us. We pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. If you'll hold the bread, which symbolizes the body of Christ on the cross given for us. I'm going to read the words that Jesus gave to the Apostle Paul from 1 Corinthians 11, verse 24, and then we'll take the bread together. Jesus said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take the bread together. If you'll unseal the juice, the cup. Which represents the shed blood of Jesus Christ for us. Again, the words of Jesus. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's take the cup together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the privilege of taking these elements together that represent your death on the cross for us, the supreme payment for sin, supreme demonstration of your love. And we give you thanks for that. We thank you for the privilege of being able to talk to you one-on-one -on -one and as a church family. We thank you for your deep love and the way it shows up in your faithfulness, in your care, your comfort, your love, and your peace. We treasure you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can set your cups on the floor. The kitchen table, a table that most of us have in our places of residence, uh, a place where we might have a couple of meals a day, or where there might be some real heart-to-heart -heart conversations with family and friends gathered around the table. There might even be some strategic board games played on that table. Oops, I forgot to dismiss <laughs> Sunshine Kids Club. Someday I'm going to cancel it, and you guys are going to be lost out there. <laughs> it's for kindergarten through grade five, and if you're a guest with us, feel free to go out with them and get to know the staff, and check them in, please. So thankful for our children's workers. We are, our, our children's director uh, retired in May, and, uh, and she's living the high life in West Texas. <laughs> 
but uh, we're currently in search of one. But our children's workers are doing a great job um, and have made a, a strong commitment, and we're very thankful for them. The kitchen table. Have you ever thought about and realized how often a table is used in idioms and in phrases? I was thinking about this week because I want to use a phrase uh, as woven through our through the message today, and so I googled it, and of course came up with an article that had 23 different uses of uh, idioms for table. So I'm going to put some on the screen to get you thinking this way, and, and uh, you know what's uh, what's a table useful for. So uh, the the first one is uh, round table. When you hear that phrase, what do you uh, what do you think of? Well, it's just a, an open discussion uh, around the table. We're going to have a round table discussion or under the table. Uh, that uh, typically refers to something done secretly under the table or to table something. That means we're going to postpone uh, this discussion till a later time. Uh, another one, to be off the table. That means we're not going to postpone it. That one's just not a solution we're ever going to use. We're, we're going to take that one off the table. Or to lay one's cards on the table. Uh, a, a way to think about being very candid uh, being transparent, getting everything out there uh, for everyone to see, or to put food on the table uh, when you're making enough money to pay for the basic necessities like food. Table is an idiom that is used quite often, and it's a good one because it is so familiar to us that we can begin to understand and associate how it is used when it is placed in a phrase or an idiom. Well, I want to use uh, another uh, idiom that, that uses the table. I want, to, I want to use the phrase, set the table. Set the table. So when you hear that, you automatically think about, you know, the place setting where you bring out the dishes and the silverware and the napkins and the glasses and you organize them correctly according to the style or the, the uh, tradition of the, the family or the type of dinner it is, type of meal. And so what you're doing is preparing for that meal. In fact, that's what the idiom means. It means to lay the groundwork for a future event. And so when you put out the place setting, you are laying the groundwork for this future event of a meal. We're, we're going to eat together, so we need all the, the uh, elements that help us accomplish that. Now, when we use that term spiritually... In light of biblical instruction and exhortation, we are talking about laying the groundwork for transformation or laying the groundwork for simply spiritual growth as we move forward in this faith journey with Jesus Christ. And that's what I want to think about, want us to think about this morning as we turn to 1 Thessalonians. I want us to think about setting the table for transformation because I believe that's what Paul, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, does in this little book, this little letter that he wrote to the church at Thessalonica. And what's exciting about it to me is that, uh, first and foremost, great change is possible. Uh, 
You know, he wouldn't talk that way. The Lord wouldn't give us that guidance. He wouldn't tell us that the table is set for transformation unless it was possible. And so if you're sitting there thinking, man, is this all there is to the spiritual life? Uh, I, I'm miss, missing out when I hear about other people talking. Or if you're sitting there thinking, I, I don't see God at work. Or if you're sitting there thinking, hey, other people might change, but it's just not going to happen in my life. Well, I think that God will uh, challenge us, exhort us, and encourage us through this little letter that Paul has given us uh, that he wrote to the church at Thessalonians. And this is how I'm going to define the theme of this book. We're going to start a sermon series on this book called Practically Speaking, What Happens When the Gospel Takes Root. And here's how I would just define the, the theme of the book, that our Lord sets the table for transformation through a personal pastoral letter, which encourages and exhorts believers to walk worthy of the Lord with confidence of his imminent return. Just a simple little letter that Paul is writing back to a city where he planted this church with a team, he and Silas and Timothy. And as we look at this, it's my prayer and, and my desire that we will be challenged by God's word, that we'll be comforted by God's word, that we'll see God's love for us and his encouragement, and that we'll be challenged by God's word and his exhortation, all given through the Apostle Paul under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. So I invite you to turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. And what we're going to do is just look at verse 1 today as an overview of the start of the book, as we, as we lay out the groundwork for this book here, as we look at what the Lord is doing to set the table for transformation. And verse 1 just simply says this of chapter 1, Paul and Silvanus and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace. And so as we look at it, I want us to consider the team that the Lord sent out to be his witnesses. I want us to consider the culture and the context of Thessalonica because that, that pulls out threads through their culture to our culture. It, it begins to help us understand where God is going with his word, his truth, and his grace, and how it might apply to us. That's the point where we can start thinking, how is this like my life? And then finally, we want to look at the uh, summary look of the chapters. So in the first part of the verse, we see these three witnesses, and this is what I would call it. The Lord set the table for transformation by sending his witnesses. He delivered the gospel to Thessalonica through Paul, Silas, and Timothy. And that's how he set the table for transformation. Originally, by presenting the gospel, by telling the people that they could have eternal life through faith in Jesus Christ. That it wasn't a matter of works and it wasn't a matter of kindness and goodness and measuring up to man's standards. That it wasn't a matter of cultic initiation rites, simple gospel of grace, putting your faith in Jesus Christ, believing that he died on the cross for your sins in your place. That's how it originally went out as the witnesses of Paul Silas and Timothy. The greeting 
in Paul's day had a standard form for any letter. And so we see it here. We see the senders, the recipients, and then just a simple greeting of grace and peace. And that's what Paul uses for this letter. Let's look at the team. We've got Paul here, who we know as the Apostle Paul, sent to, you know, or gotten his attention on the road to Damascus when he's out persecuting believers. Jesus grabs his attention, appears to him, and he becomes a follower of Jesus at that point. And he is commissioned to go out and take the gospel, primarily to the Gentiles. So he's been a believer about 17 years at this point, and he's been a missionary about seven or eight years. So his theology is developed, and it's tested, and it's God-given and God-protected, and now it's God-delivered through Paul's writing to the letter at, at, uh, to Thessalonica. In Silas, we see a prophet is what he's called in Jerusalem. He attends the Jerusalem council. It, it, trying to figure out what are we going to require of the Gentiles if they come to Jesus by grace through faith, then we're going to have them walk with Jesus by grace through faith. And he goes out with Paul and Barnabas back to Antioch. He takes the, the message there, even speaks to them, preaches. And then at that point, Paul and Barnabas have a split. Do you remember that on the second missionary journey? They've already been on a first missionary journey together, but they split at the second one. Barnabas wants to bring John Mark, who had deserted them. And Paul says, no, we can't take any quitters with us. And so they split. And now we've got two teams going out. Barnabas and John Mark go out. And we see the redemption of John Mark through that. And Paul takes with him Silas. And they head north into Asia. And when they head north into Asia, they find Timothy. And Timothy is at Lystra. He's a believer to whom Paul becomes attached as a mentor. He's going to disciple Timothy to Jesus in a way that grows Timothy spiritually so that he becomes more like Jesus, but also, or also mentors him in how to pastor, how to love on people, how to disciple others, how to point people to Jesus, all the things that we want. And it's so exciting to me that, that, that Jesus includes this stuff. He doesn't just say, hey, come to me for salvation. You're good. Now figure it out. He says, no, I want you guys to disciple one another to me. I want you to point each other to me. I want you to be able to say to one another, follow me as I follow Christ. And so that's what Paul is going to do with Timothy here. Timothy was half Gentile, half Jewish. His mother and his grandmother were Jewish. And we read in 2 Timothy that they raised him according to scripture. So he had a good working knowledge. And he came to Christ either as a, a child through reading scripture with them or perhaps on the first missionary journey. So when Paul and Silas and now Timothy set out on this missionary journey, their desire is to go back and revisit those churches from the first missionary journey. That's what they say in, in the book of Acts. And so we see in Acts chapters 16, 17, and 18, this second missionary journey. And, and it's, a, uh, it's just a little bit of a travel log uh, of what took place as they went out to revisit the churches. Well, one of the first things that takes place is that uh, 
their, their plans are changed. As I thought about this, I thought about their willingness, their loving response to the Lord to go out and deliver the gospel, to love on others. And I thought about the way that we are called to do the same thing. And the excitement for me is that just as we see these guys go out and we see that there is suffering, there is opposition at times, we also see the Holy Spirit at work in fascinating ways. And we get a little taste of that as we look at uh, their journey, in, in, uh, especially as they end up in uh, Thessalonica. But when we're faithfully engaged with with Jesus, especially in being his witnesses, we get to see him work in us and we get to see him work through us. And more importantly, people get to hear of the love of Christ for them. So let's think about that missionary trip just a little bit because in this missionary trip, we get to see a little bit of God's work, his strategy for getting the gospel out, and also a little bit of understanding of what's going on in the different places that Paul goes. So I'm going to put a map up on the screen, if it's not there already, that uh, details the second journey. So they've left from Antioch. You see it over here. It's the, it's the upper Antioch, not the lower. And then they've gone to Troas. And this is where uh, they are prevented from going out through the rest of Asia. And uh, what we would think of as Turkey right there by Troas. And they get the Macedonian vision. And, and so there's this Greek man uh, saying, please come to us. And this is God's way of directing them by the Holy Spirit to go into Europe. And so now the gospel is going to go to Europe. So they head out by boat and then by walk. And they head to Philippi. And once they get to Philippi, they go to the synagogue and they begin to preach. This was Paul's M.O. He would go to the synagogue, the gospel to the Jew first. But it was also a place where people were familiar with Scripture. So he could begin to teach them and go to the Old Testament and say, here's what Isaiah 53 says. That's the Messiah. And that was fulfilled in Jesus, in his life, his death and his resurrection. And so he would talk to them there, and there were typically some God-fearing uh, proselytes there, some Gentiles, and so the word would begin to spread, and that would build relationships where Paul and his team could go out. Well, they're in Philippi, and the persecution begins. So isn't this interesting? Again, as we think about the spiritual life, that it's just not all, uh, you know, a bowl of cherries. It's not all excitement and uh, comfort and pleasure because uh, it would be easy to think that, especially if you're this, this team, right? I mean, you've been given this directive, go to Europe, you know, and, and so they go. And uh, as you can see, they're going to go to big cities around the Aegean Sea. They're going to circle that and then head back to Jerusalem eventually. But in the midst of that, there's persecution. What is that about? And so the persecution in Philippi is, is more economic. They are hurting the local business because they cast out demons of this woman who's telling the future. And people are making huge profits off of her that owned her. And, and so they cast out the demons and the town comes down on them and persecutes them and they are beaten and they are Roman citizens. So this shouldn't be happening, but they're illegally imprisoned. And then there's an earthquake. Well, in Philippi, we see 
two converts of tremendous importance, right? At the beginning of their time there, Lydia is converted, the first believer in Europe. And then at the end of their time, the jailer, where they were delivered from jail by the earthquake. The authorities are all mixed up. They're confused. They have egg on their face because they have illegally imprisoned Roman citizens without a hearing. And they ask them to just quietly leave. And so Paul and his team, they go on up to Thessalonica, next major city. And it's in Thessalonica that things start really, really well. They go to the synagogue again and, and people come to Christ. We read that in Acts 17, that there are a lot of Jewish people that come to Christ. There are a lot of God-fearing Gentiles that come to Christ. There are a lot of the leading women of the city that come to Christ. And a number of people whose lives were given to worshiping idols. They had committed their lives to idols for protection and provision. And they repented of that and trusted Jesus Christ. They changed their mind about what they were trusting in and chose to trust Jesus Christ. This missionary team is being obedient in their witness to Jesus Christ. And that's really exciting. And then persecution hits again. This time it's not just about the economic setting uh, because people are losing uh, due to the economy, although I'm sure that was happening because there were some major cults and um, idols there that people made money off of when they sold statues and, and different things to uh, push along your worship of uh, these idols. But the main thing here was uh, it started with the Jews getting jealous that people in the synagogue were now trusting Jesus Christ. They were actually believing that he was the Messiah. They saw his fulfillment of scripture and placed their faith in him and their lives were radically changed. And so the Jews stirred up a mob, which is actually, it's not like the situation in Portland so much as it was a, a political way to... Um, get people's attention. It was, it was called a citizen's assembly, if you will. And so they stir up this citizen's assembly and they say, these guys are turning the world upside down. Isn't that a beautiful thing? That's what happens when we're faithful to serve Jesus as his witnesses. They're turning the world upside down and they're endangering our lives. And we're mad because Jewish people are now trusting Jesus Christ. And there's some more stuff going on behind that that we'll look at a little bit later. And so Paul and his team are sent out of town secretly by the Christians there. And the mob uh, can't get anybody, so they go to the ruling authorities there in Thessalonica. And, and they can't find Paul and, and Timothy, so they grab uh, Jason where he was living. And, and they say, Jason... Uh, we're going to put you on a bond here and, and you've got to promise that these guys are not going to do this anymore. So they head off to Berea and things start well in the synagogue, but they, they last the shortest time possible there because the Jews in Thessalonica are mad and they come the 40 miles south to Berea and chase uh, Paul and Silas and Timothy out of there. So again, what is going on? I mean, there's got to be a little confusion here, Right. And I'm not sure that any of us feel confusion when we share the gospel, but we have a lot of other barriers, don't we? 
you know, is this socially acceptable? Sometimes that removes us from it. Or it, 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 are people going to hate me for sharing the, the good news of Jesus Christ with them? Or am I going to get it wrong and, and say the wrong thing? We, we bring out all kinds of barriers that to me would parallel the confusion that this team must have felt initially, but they were bold to push on, to be faithful witnesses. So they go on down to Athens. Of course, we read in Acts 17, that's where Paul engaged the philosophers of the city and talked to them about the unknown God and, and led them to know about Jesus Christ, and some even trusted him there. It was here that he sent Silas back to Berea to continue to evangelize and develop the church there. And he sent Timothy back to Thessalonica. And he said, I want you to get uh, to call on those dear people that became so dear to us before we were kicked out of the city. I want you to give me a report on what is going on. And so he goes on to Corinth, and that's where Paul, or that's where Silas and Timothy eventually come back to him. Paul stayed in Corinth for about 18 months. So he was there quite a while. Uh, so this is the second missionary journey around the Aegean Sea. Paul, Silas, and Timothy are faithful witnesses. They are willing to go out, and they are willing to be bold. And part of the strategy that we see in the big picture from 30,000 feet is God is saying, hey, I'm going to use persecution to push the gospel along. How many of us would have thought of that as a great strategy? Not too many of us. And in fact, any hint of those barriers I mentioned or any hint of persecution, we typically back off. And how is it, how often is it that I don't get to see God work in somebody's life because I back off of the gospel or because I back off of sharing the love of Jesus Christ for them? It's thoroughly convicting to look at the bold witness of these two, these three, and think about where I'm at in my life, where you may be at in your life. These guys were faithful. We have the same calling on our life. Acts 1.8, do you remember what Jesus said there? He said, but when you, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. He made it more direct in Matthew 28. Go into all the nations and make disciples. That's our commission. That's our calling as followers of Jesus Christ. We have the same calling that Paul, Silas, and Timothy had. We haven't been given a vision to go to Europe, although that may come in your life. But you may be given a vision to talk to anybody in your sphere of influence, a neighbor, a colleague at work a schoolmate, people that God has placed you among to just be a light, to share the love of Jesus Christ, to let people know how much God does love them and that they can trust him. The Lord always sets the table for transformation by delivering the gospel of grace through witnesses. We've got to be faithful to join God on this grand adventure, just like Paul, Silas, and Timothy did. Well, we've seen the men and their trip around the Aegean Sea in the first part of 1-1. Now I want us to consider the, the culture as part of the context of where the gospel was going 
and how that affects us in our life here in the second part of chapter 1, verse 1. I would say the Lord set the table for transformation in the midst of opposition, in the midst of opposition. In 1-1, one, one, that second part is to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The power of the gospel became evident in changed lives. They were made new creatures in Christ when they trusted him, trusted Jesus as Savior. Paul and Silas and Timothy had sought to reflect the character and the conduct of Christ. And this letter is so beautiful. I think you'll enjoy reading it. And I, and I would challenge you to read it at least once this week. It takes about 10, 15 minutes to just get a glimpse of the heart of Paul, the apostle. I, I don't know where you're at when you think about the apostle Paul, but I typically think of Romans and then I get real intimidated, you know, at his brilliance and, and his fiery boldness and all of that. But it's in 1 Thessalonians where we see the real heart of, of Paul. We see his boldness, certainly, but we see his love and his concern for those people that are not yet followers of Jesus and those people that are followers of Jesus. Well, in the midst of it, there is hostile opposition. And it's found in the form of the culture, the city, authorities, and it's found in the form of religious opposition as well. Physically, Paul writes to the city of Thessalonica, specifically to the believers who have trusted Christ and a church has been formed. They are a church family. Well, what is it about Thessalonica that is unique? It was a unique city. And the primary thing about it being a unique city is that it was a free city. It's part of the Roman Empire. Now, it had a high standing because it was um, uh, given made the capital of Macedonia, but it had a higher standing as a free city back in 42 BC. It was made a free city. That meant it could govern itself. That was rare in the Roman Empire. It meant that there, was no, there were no Roman military members in the city that had to be paid for by taxes from the city. It meant that taxes were lower. It meant that they could govern themselves and that, that Rome did not govern them. They could mint their own coins. There were lots of things that came with being a free city in the Roman Empire. It made them a unique city. And that comes into play in terms of the opposition that these guys will face. But it was the Lord that sent Thessalonica here. It was a unique city. It was also a beautiful city. It was originally named Therma for the hot springs there. So if you can picture this, uh, a beautiful harbor right there, mountains around with hot springs, rivers coming down, fertile farmland, lots of fishing, a beautiful city to visit. And many tourists came just for the site, just to look at the beautiful city that it was. It was renamed Thessalonica for the half-sister of Alexander the Great back in 315 B.C. So this city has been there for about 350 years, and it's a city of about 200,000 people when Paul comes through. Now, that was really rare. It was probably the second largest city in the Roman Empire at that time. 200,000 people. 
You can see part of God's strategy is to send Paul and his evangelistic team to a major location, a major drawing point where the gospel can spread much faster and much further. It was not only a unique city and a beautiful city, it was also a strategic city. It was a destination site for religion. It was a destination site for commercial activity. In fact, in, in our country right now, everybody's relocating because they can work from home. Well, a lot of people relocated there just to find work because they wanted to live in Thessalonica. And as you see on the screen, this is the Ignatian Way. This is the Roman road that was built about 200 years before Paul came through. And he walked this road from Philippi all the way around to Athens. It was a road that went from Rome all the way over to Byzantium, about 700 miles. Byzantium is Istanbul today. And it was developed to be have better lines of communication, easier travel for military transport especially, and for spreading out the culture of the Roman Empire. Well, all of that went right through Thessalonica. It was a major city. It was a major seafaring port. And so it was very strategic for God to send the gospel there, that it might go out by sea and by the Ignatian Way and through all the visitors who came to worship at one of the idol's temples or to engage in commercial activity in the city because it was a booming city. Most people did manual labor, but there was certainly an elite class as well that people wanted to be a part of. It's a bustling, busy city, and it was made up of people, same as today, people searching for truth, people hungry for answers for the human condition. And unfortunately, a lot of them would seek that through the major cults, the major idols that were there. You could go south to Mount Olympus. Many people came in by boat and took the Ignatian way down to Mount Olympus to worship Zeus and the Greek gods. But many stayed right there. There were three major cults right in Thessalonica that were extremely sexual and extremely filled with alcohol. And they promised protection for sailors. And they promised provision for the average person. And they promised joy through revelry and partying. I think some of that still goes on. This was a culture that was searching for answers. It was ripe for the gospel to come through and for people to be convicted by the Holy Spirit and to really experience life to the fullest. A life where your character is changed and you begin to live out things like love, joy, and peace, and patience, and gentleness instead of striving and, and, and trying to work that out through lots of positive self-affirmations. The Roman imperial, imperial cult was probably the major overarching cult in the city. And it was the one that said, you are to worship Caesar as God, as a God. You are to worship him. And... In fact, when they would go out into the empire and talk about emperor worship, they would use the word, here is the gospel. Here is the good news. 
So Paul comes through with a gospel. He's using language they're familiar with, but he's pointing to an eternal source. He's pointing to Jesus Christ. Again, a strategic city where people are called on to trust in Jesus Christ. It was this imperial cult that got Paul and Silas and Timothy in trouble ultimately in Thessalonica. Because when they came out and they accused these men of disrupting the world, going back to Jerusalem and Antioch and other cities where they had been, when they accused them of teaching Jesus as king, what they were saying is, we are scared to death. We're going to lose our status as a free city if people start preaching another king than the emperor. And so that was one of the major reasons that they brought out this persecution, which God used to just keep moving the gospel along around the Mediterranean. Our culture is following hard after that of Thessalonica. But we preach the same gospel. We preach a gospel that changes hearts, that explodes in a life as Jesus moves in to lead and to change from the inside out. And so we can rely on the power of the gospel and the power of Christ at work here. What was the church family like in Thessalonica? Well, I mentioned earlier from Acts 17 that it was probably a Jewish leadership because they had probably been leaders in the synagogue. It was made up of a number of Gentiles that were non-Jews, probably all kinds of different ethnicities around the Mediterranean basin, living in Thessalonica or just passing through. It was made up of leading women of the city, and that would have gotten the word out across even to political authorities in Thessalonica what was going on. It was made up of those, we will read in chapter 1, who were worshipers of idols. And so it's quite a diverse group, economically, socially, ethnically, and God brings them together and sets the table for transformation. He changes them into new creatures when they trust Jesus Christ, and he calls them, challenges them, just as he challenges us to walk worthy of Jesus Christ as we grow in our grace and knowledge of him. That's the makeup of the church family. They were in the midst of hostile opposition. We saw that with Paul getting kicked out. It applied to the people that stayed there and lived there. And so what we see is that they continued to choose to grow in the midst of that. They continued to walk with Jesus in the midst of that. Paul sends Timothy back, and Timothy reports, and we read over in chapter 3, uh, verse 6, now that Timothy has come to us from you and brought us good news of your faith and love, that you think kindly of us, longing to see us just as we also long to see you. He's given a report back to Paul, but he also tells them that they are in danger of being tempted by the tempter. And what kind of temptation would you face in hostile opposition? Well, you might face the temptation to go back to Rome trusting in the emperor for peace and for security and for comfort instead of possibly getting sideways with Rome and enduring persecution on your own. We're not told exactly what the temptation is that they were tempted with, but we know whatever it is, it would draw them away from seeing Jesus Christ as the source of their strength. 
that's one of the reports that Timothy gives. Jesus set the table for transformation in Thessalonica, even in the midst of hostile opposition. People are pointed to Jesus, and he is the one who transforms. And then in the last part of the verse, we get the, the greeting, the message. And this is what I would say as I kind of wrap up the, summarize the message of Thessalonians, that the Lord set the table for transformation with a message of hope. Each of these five chapters end with a message of hope. Each one ends with a message of hope regarding the return of Jesus Christ. And so we are to look forward with confident expectation as to Jesus' return for us. There will be a resurrection of the dead and a reunion of God's people. And that brings us joy. That gives us something to live for. If we have this biblical hope, which is a confident expectation, we can be sure and certain of God's faithfulness to keep his word, that Jesus is going to return, then we can trust him and live our lives differently. It changes our perspective. We're willing to, to, to be more motivated towards sacrifice and service because we know he's returning for us. He's not going to leave us here. There's not just uh, a blank uh, ending to our lives or something to guess at. Paul wants to make it very clear that the imminent return of Christ is on the horizon and that we are to live in light of that with a biblical hope. Paul wrote to inform them of Jesus' return, and he wanted to change their perspective. In the message, he says, grace and peace. Certainly words that were used in common greetings, but also infused with incredible spiritual truth when Paul uses them. Because we are rooted in God's grace. It is the grace of Jesus Christ that allows us to trust him, to believe that he died on the cross for our sins in our place and to have our sins forgiven. That's the gift of God. It's not of any works that we can do. It's by the grace of Jesus Christ that we continue to grow as believers on this faith journey, that we become more and more like Jesus. And that's an incredible gift. And the peace that we enjoy, we're no longer rebels or enemies with God, at war with God, which Paul describes in Romans 5. But we are now at peace with God because Jesus has reconciled us to God. And we're at peace with all those who have trusted Jesus Christ. And we're able to experience his peace. This surpasses all understanding. It makes no sense in this world because of the power of his presence. As we look at the occasion, certainly one of the catalysts was Timothy's re return. I think there were three arguments that perhaps the opponents were making in their opposition. And I think we see those in chapters 1, 2, and 3. In chapter 1, uh, this chapter answers the argument of the opponents that Paul's message is not from God. They, and so they say, it's not from God, you're not an apostle, and therefore there is no conversion. But chapter 1 makes it clear what happens when the gospel explodes in a person's life and how people are changed and how churches are changed. Chapter two answers the argument of the opponents that, that Paul, you are just a peddler for profit. You're a snake oil salesman. 
you're just here, as Matt described last week, making money off of philosophy and getting people to follow you. And Paul counters that with his motives and his methods in chapter 2. And we see again the heart through his character and his conduct that downplays all of that. And then chapter 3 answers the argument of the opponents that says, to prove you don't care about the Thessalonians, you haven't even come back to visit, uh, persecution or not. And Paul says, I long to come back to you. That's why I sent Timothy. Satan has prevented me from coming. And then he ends the chapter with a prayer that the Lord will allow him to return. Paul answers all these arguments of the opponents. And then chapters 4 and 5, he gives instructions and exhortation on practical matters that have to do with all kinds of things that are still found in our culture. Kindness, unkindness, sexual immorality, praying without ceasing, rejoicing, giving thanks, all kinds of things that we want to see stirred up in our lives. And he wraps it around more instruction about end times, about the return of Jesus Christ, to correct some of their thinking and to flatten out some of their doubts and their confu clear up their confusion by explaining that Jesus will return. And if those have already died, even since we left you, they will be resurrected. Chapters 4 and 5 give those kinds of promises. So practically speaking, to sum up, what happens when the gospel takes, takes root? Transformation happens. Lives are changed. And that's really exciting. And that's why I look forward to going through this book. It's just a filled with practical exhortations and encouragements. We are loved and challenged by God in this little book as he draws us forward out of love toward himself as he continues to work on us from the inside out. And one of the best things I love about it is even though there are commands to obey and principles to apply, that there is a promise put right at the end of the book. I should make you read the book this week to find out, but I'm going to put it on the screen and read it for you. Paul wrote this, faithful is he who calls you and he also will bring it to pass. We have this promise given to the Thessalonians and given to followers of Jesus today that God is at work and that he will continue the work that he has begun in us to make us more like Jesus, that he will keep his word in everywhere that he has given a promise and that Jesus will return one day and that we will have glorified bodies as we see him face to face. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for the privilege of knowing you. Thank you for initiating this relationship. And thank you for just giving us practical insight and understanding in, into how to follow you. And we ask for the grace to do that even this week as we want to be your witnesses with the commission you've given us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Would you stand with me? Oh,
Yeah. 
for being with us today. Have a great week.